Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of Extraordinary with me, James Wallace. Thanks so much for being here. In this episode, I sit down with one of my oldest and closest friends, Alexis Goldfarb. Alexis tells me what it was like to grow up as a motherless daughter and also tells me about her battle with cancer at just 21 years old. She shares her really interesting perspectives on life and has a unique approach to just about everything she does. I'm so proud of Alexis and she's a true example of extraordinariness. If you enjoyed this episode, please take the time to follow or subscribe from wherever you're listening from and of course, leave a review if you can. Enjoy the show. Alexis, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this one for such a long time. We've been talking about this for for many, many weeks and months. So thank you so much for um, clearing the diary to speak to me. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. It's going to be so fun because it's weird because we are the oldest and bestest of friends. Um, As kids, we were, what did we refer to ourselves as? Like king and queen. Yeah, that's who we are royalty. And no one wanted to mess with us. No. We were forced, forced to be reckoned with. <laughs> um, so I know a lot about you, but the reason why you're on here today is because I think you have an, an extremely extraordinary story to tell. You have been through so much in your life um, at such a young age. But for those who don't know who you are, can you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I am Alexis Goldfarb. Um, I'm 30 years old and I am a diversity and inclusion practitioner. So I currently work in financial services um, in a large financial institution overseeing the diversity, equity and inclusion strategy across the EMEA region. Um, And before I held this job, I held a number of roles in the legal sector, also practicing diversity and inclusion. How interesting. Uh, Was diversity and inclusion something you always thought you would end up? doing like how how did you land such an interesting role no so I studied at Leeds with your fine self um and studied business management with human resource management and graduated with a first and following graduation I just kind of thought well I'm clearly good at HR I will find a job in human resources because that's what we do we need to get a good job in a big corporate institution land a good salary and live happily ever after um as you know life for graduates isn't that simple um but i did land a job in diversity and inclusion at a big law firm on a fixed term contract and as they say the rest is history and do you love it yeah i absolutely love it i genuinely believe it is a privilege and an honor to do the work which i do do i have days when i struggle to get out of bed because i have a full day of calls and the work needs to get done 100 percent but I absolutely do believe it is an honour and a privilege to do this job. And I'm really, really lucky um, to feel so fulfilled in a job because I recognise that not many people have that feeling. That's amazing and quite right. Um, I also I also echo that. And I feel like it's difficult because people ask me, I think like you, we work in big corporates um, and we were grads. When I'm asked if I like my job, it's almost as though I sold my soul to the devil. And it's like, I actually didn't. And I actually quite like it. So I'm cool with that. I don't work in a, like a snazzy startup and a WeWork and all that stuff. But <laughs> I have so much fun. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I think generationally, that's not uncommon. I think there are more and more people like us, millennials and kind of the incoming Gen Z, who now expect gratification and satisfaction from work in a way which perhaps our parents and other generations before us didn't. 
Um, but I do recognize that it is an honor to enjoy your job because lots of people don't. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go all the way back um, because the present day is fun, but the past is more interesting, I think. So you had a very far from typical childhood. Can you just tell everyone what your childhood was like? So I lost my mum when I was very young. I was seven when she died of breast cancer um, and she was ill for most of my life. Um, and then following my mum's death, I experienced years of abuse, um, which of course resulted in a really unhappy childhood. Um, and I think it really hindered my ability to properly grieve for my mum. Um, I think if I reflect back on losing my mum at age seven, and you know now I'm 30, obviously the passage of time gives an opportunity for reflection. At that time, it was the 1990s, people just didn't talk about death. They did not talk about the C word. Um, and it was like a dirty little secret that people just didn't address. And I think the stigma and the taboo in losing a parent so young was, as I said, such a hindrance for me to be able to process my grief. And I think, I actually think what happened was something which we see a lot, even in present day, which is where people just don't know what to say. So they end up not saying anything at mm. all, which in turn makes it so much worse. And I think that coupled with the lack of awareness and the lack of education, you know, there was this assumption that grief and bereavement was just something that was really neat and cyclical and mourning was something you overcame we just didn't have the tools as a society to kind of process grief and talking to children about what it was like to lose a parent, which in turn meant that I suppressed all my feelings and all my grief and all my sadness. And we can come on to how, how you are dealing or how you dealt with that grief and sadness. And it's interesting what you said around it being the 1990s and things weren't as uh, progressive as perhaps they are now. But I just wonder if how much of that is down to, yes, times have moved on, but also you taking so much time, i.e. from the age of seven to 30, to actually start thinking about what happened to you in your childhood. Because as a child, I don't think we are necessarily developed enough to really process everything. And to be honest, I don't think I processed it until I would say the last year. Um, I actually don't think I was processing anything related to bereavement because I had such, I, I experienced such trauma as I've already alluded to. I experienced years mm. of abuse, which culminated in a cancer um, diagnosis. And I had 18 months of treatment, which I know you want to get on to later. But I think because of those subsequent traumas, mm. I just never addressed the grief of losing my mum. Um, and it was actually when I read a book um, towards the end of last year called Motherless Daughters by Hope Edelman. And I encourage anyone, any daughter who has lost a mother um, to read that book because it was like getting into a time machine and channeling all of my innermost thoughts over the past 25 years. Um, and what the book did was reaffirm to me what I already thought, which was that the notion of being a motherless daughter 
is so under-researched. Like they just don't have research and insights, save for this book, on the impact of young daughters losing their mother. Um, and what the book does is open up a community of other motherless daughters across the globe who have also experienced losing their mother at a young age and subsequently experiencing silence and taboo and you know shame and sadness and grief um, in a way that, as I said, it was like getting into a time machine and someone tapping into my innermost thoughts um, affirming to me that I wasn't alone. Um, and so I don't mm. think I actually ever did deal with it up until I would say the past year. Um, and reading that book, I would say kind of triggered my ability to process these emotions. And at, at the time you said you were seven. So what, what does a seven year old motherless daughter act like how did you navigate your childhood with all your friends who had you know I, I, I was one of them we have lots of amazing friends with amazing families like but all very conventional 2.4 mm -hmm. families like lovely family holidays and lovely homes etc how did you cope with that as, as a kid at school I think as a child I didn't you know, children adapt very, very quickly. We've seen that in the past year, um, very obviously. Children will adapt to their surroundings. And as I said, people just didn't talk to me about losing my mum. And I remember thinking at the time, like, why aren't we talking about her? Did we forget her? Did, they, did everyone else forget her? You know, is it just me because I'm a child? And I'm thinking, mm. am I the only one that still remembers her? But you just adapt to the environment in which you operate in and so I think the way I navigated it was just by carrying on with life and as I've already alluded to what happened subsequently was so traumatic and difficult and challenging in its own right that required all of my energy I almost couldn't I just did not have the tools and the strategies to deal with grief or sadness, even if it was delayed. Um, I just didn't have the ability or the kind of the the energy to focus on anything other than the here and now. And that was my survival tactic. And maybe that was my survival tactic, you know, straight after um, losing my mum. But living in a really abusive environment requires, you know, survival mode. Yeah. And of course, not having not having a mum to to run to or lean to, I guess, just deepened the wounds even further, and, and dialed up the the survival mode. And it's also really sad. Like I, I'm just reflecting because I always knew that you lost your mum, but as a kid, and this might be my immaturity, but we just didn't talk about it. It was like I don't know if I was emotionally unavailable uh, to talk about it. But I get the sense that you, like everyone knew, it was like, oh yeah, Alexis, she's the one that that lost her mum. But we, but we don't talk about it. And I wonder if kids on the playground now would talk about it. I would hope that they would. I think as a society, we have become more confident in talking about dying death and bereavement. Um, again, you know, in the past year, um, if nothing else. But I also think there has been a huge improvement in our confidence in addressing cancer um you know as i said it was the c word people just didn't talk about 
cancer because it was the silent killer. Yeah. Well, now, thanks to research, mm-hmm. thanks to treatment, thanks to science, we're so much more further along. It's no longer a silent killer. It's something which you can deal with head on. You know, there's so much research, there's so much kind of pride, you know, pride in being a survivor, there's community, there's support, you've got local communities, you've got big corporate, you know, cancer research and so forth. Um, and sadly, losing a parent is more common now, especially for younger children, but also as you as you say, kind of non-conventional family setups, like modern families. I just think there's greater acceptance in mm. not having a mom and dad and 2.4 children um as a society i think we have got better and more confident in addressing that and talking about that and of course like the sad truth is is that if your mum was diagnosed today there's every chance that she may have survived 100 100%. but we also know that you know that that's as sad as it is for you it's an incredible thing for many many um people who who um get diagnosed with cancer on a daily basis there's a huge billboard outside you know the bus stop just outside my flat is a huge cancer research poster which says one in two of us will get it but all of us can fight it or all of us can beat it i think the slogan is so you you talked about reading the book motherless daughters which helped um did you also seek bereavement therapy or any form of therapy then or even later on in life to help um yeah I mean I've been in therapy for most of my life I don't think I ever really addressed my mum dying as I've said because there was so much else to focus on and again I think that was I think that was my survival tactic it was like it was too painful to go there um and Mm. I can kind of say this with a smile on my face. I knew I had been in therapy all my life and I was so good at talking about all the other trauma that I had experienced. But it literally was so painful for me to even say the word mum up until about six months ago. Because I, do, because I just hadn't done any of that work. Um, and I think that is, you know, when I think about it, am I surprised? Well, no, because as I said to you, I remember as a seven-year-old child thinking, you know, did everyone forget that, you know, she existed? Um, but mm. so, so so it's not it's not a surprise to me, but even though I was in counselling and therapy all my life, um, it was the one, it was my taboo. I had like picked up on everyone else's yeah. inability to confront it. And that was my, you know, that that was my kind of demon as well. Your thing. Mm. yeah okay so fast forward uh a few years quite a few years you were i think just finishing uni and then you got diagnosed with um hodgkin lymphoma at 21 can you just describe what that was like and kind of how you battled the next kind of curveball that was thrown at you Yeah, so I was 21, I was starting my third year um, of uni, and I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer, um, which affects your immune system. And I can't explain it in any other way, other than I just knew when I felt the lump on my neck, what it was. And of course, I said to everybody, I've got this lump. And they're like, well, it will be nothing because it usually is nothing. But I can't explain it in any other way other than an intuition, a gut instinct um, that I knew 
exactly what it was and and my 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 you know worst fears were confirmed about two weeks later um that it was a stage two and growing hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis and at that time i think and i want to be really sensitive about how i say this but it felt like a massive sigh of relief because it felt like I had finally almost been heard. I felt like there was some pressure that was released from my chest, almost like I had something to say. And subsequent scans confirmed that I actually had a 12, 12 millimeter mass across my chest and tumors up and down my neck. And to me, I just knew that this was years of grief, pain, emotion, pent up anger, pent up sadness that I just had not expressed. And it was energy that needed to be released. And it had never been released, but it needed to be released. And therefore it had formed into a cancer. We know, you know, our emotions are energy. They're gonna have to go somewhere eventually. Um, and it were things that I had to get off my chest. And so when I was diagnosed, it was like a, a light bulb moment that I had to get something off my chest. And what, what, what was that thing? It was grief. It was bereavement. It was mourning. It was sadness. It was anger. Um, it was dealing with, with, with my past. Do you think, I mean, that's so interesting. And I've never, ugh, we, we've, all, we've often talked about kind of being stressed or having pent up emotion can make you ill. Mm-hmm. Do you do you truly believe that this cancer, this diagnosis, was a result of years of of you know compounding stress and sorrow and all the trauma in your life that that showed itself and reared itself as cancer? One hundred and fifty percent. And I remember my I remember my doctor going through my chemotherapy plan with me, and I remember just thinking well, this is your detox. I remember just thinking in my head, like, this is your opportunity to mourn, to grieve, to almost like cleanse, to detox. And mm. I had, I knew deep down, I had to reframe my perspectives and my experiences. And I had to address my past because that I could only suppress it for so long. And and now, as you know, a 30 year old, I'm able to reflect and say, I can't let myself get to that stage again, because I fear for my health. And likewise, I do with all my friends. You know, if my friends tell me that they're stressed or something's going on, and we all have stuff going on. My first thought is, okay, we have to sort this out. You know, how are you releasing that energy? Who are you talking to? Are you doing the right exercises? Because I need to know that they are doing everything in their power to address whatever's going on for them because you just can't bottle it up. So are we saying that at 21, get diagnosed, you're, you're going through all the really heavy going treatment. I know you lost all your hair. You know, it was it was very, very taxing on, on the body, as as is all chemotherapy, by the way, and radiotherapy for that matter. But you as a 21-year-old who had gone through so much in your life, it was obviously for all of us as your friends, it was extremely sad how did that period change and how quickly did it change your outlook on life what were the immediate things that you started doing differently 
were, were there kind of fundamental things in your life that you stopped doing or maybe started doing? Yes. I mean, as I've said, the first thing that came to mind was I, I knew I just had to address this anger and this emotion and everything that had built up inside me. Um, so I did restart therapy after maybe a year of being out, um, talking therapies, meditation, visualization. I remember really visualizing, um, as I said, the chemo detoxing my body and almost giving me a fresh start. You know, yes, I lost my hair, but yes, my hair grew back. And that was an opportunity for me to regrow, um, for me to reemerge mm -hmm. with greater purpose. Um, and I really tapped into what I think was important and is important to me at the time. It's the little things that matter. So really taking time to connect with friends, with family and practicing gratefulness. I was so grateful, as anyone can attest, who has faced their own mortality. You become so grateful for every moment of every day. Um, when I was in the deepest, darkest moments of chemotherapy, you know, I had no energy whatsoever. I remember going to fill my car up with petrol and my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, had to come because I couldn't fill the car. I, I had got the, I was so weak. I had got the um, petrol nozzle and I was holding it. Nozzle. But I didn't, yeah, nozzle. I didn't have the energy to actually <laughs> fill the car up with petrol. So I'm standing in a BP garage on the phone crying because I just didn't have the energy. Um, and you become so grateful to be able to eventually fill your car up with petrol or you know walk around the block and quite literally wake up um, and see blue skies one morning. Um, and I think that was a pivotal point for me. Um, and I'm sure that's not too dissimilar mm. to anyone who has, who has faced death. And then you got really into fitness. I don't know if it was this period of your time, because I know you're like a Barry's fangirl. Um, you're like known for like doing two, three Barry's a day if you could. But was it that point in time as well that you got really into health and fitness, like with the green juices and the exercising and yes. excessive sweating? Yes. yes, I think I think it was twofold. I think as I was finishing chemotherapy, as I said, I was so weak. The doctor's advice was build up your fitness. It will come back slowly, um, but kind of do what you can um, in the immediate term. But also I became so aware of how precious life is and in turn wanted to do everything in my power and still want to do everything in my power to remain the healthiest, best version of myself. Um, and so that's where the kind of love of exercise came in. I also think I see it and probably saw it as an opportunity to release. You know, it's my stress release. It's my mm -hmm. one hour a day, if it's not more, where I'm not looking at my phone, the work emails aren't going, I'm not distracted by Instagram. Um, it's a release and it's my me time. And I think that is so important yeah. as I'm sure I know you're the same you know in whatever guise or whatever form it's really important just to switch off and that has become my mode of switching off million percent and that's a perfect segue as well because even before the the diagnosis and I remember we used to talk for hours and hours and hours on the phone and I just remember we must have been 15 16 and you were like I've had a spiritual awakening and I was like 
what is that? I was like, that sounds fun. Um, <laughs> and obviously this was like before, before there was a real spiritual movement. Cause I do feel like there is a movement and culturally we've moved along and there's lots and lots and lots of people talking about it. But I, of all the people I know and all the people I've met, you were the first person that really started talking about spirituality, uh, which is interesting because this was like, this preceded anything. I mean, yes, it came after the, you know, the tragic loss of your mum, but before uh, the diagnosis of cancer. So can you just talk to me and tell everyone a bit about your relationship with spirituality and what and how that presents itself in your life? So I had what I, what I deemed a spiritual awakening what I actually think happened um, was what most people know to be post-traumatic growth. Um, so Adam Grant famously coined it. Um, uh, and it's a term which is understood as the positive psychological change that is experienced as a result of a struggle with a highly challenging um, life event or life circumstance. Um, and aspects of post-traumatic growth include an appreciation of life, which I've already alluded to, spiritual change, mm-hmm. um, which you've already alluded to, and new possibilities in life. And I think that that is exactly what happened with me as I faced um, my own mortality. When, you know, you look death in the eye, you just kind of think, I'm so lucky to be here. How can I make the most of what's left to come? And I also think because I had seen my mum die so young, you know, she was 40 when she died, you know, or I knew as a child, life can be taken away from you very, very quickly. And that was just reaffirmed to me with my own cancer um, diagnosis. You know, you're aware of your own mortality and you appreciate that life has limits. Um, And as I've said, it can end quickly. So you want to make the most of your time. And I wanted to make the most of my time um, on this earth. Um, And I think, I I also think that that spiritual mindset, that kind of philosophical approach has really helped me manage and resolve my own trauma. It's something I refer back to a lot in therapy. Um, I subsequently studied, went on to study psychosynthesis, which is the notion of um, making meaning of life. It's the notion of constantly evolving, constantly learning. Um, And as I said, it's helped me really make meaning out of what's happened, as opposed to just trying to play the blame game or placing blame on circumstances or people. Um, It's helped me reframe and look at things in a more positive light and and what I would say as well as and and that is all true as a friend of yours I've seen I've seen that firsthand but I think what's really interesting with you as well is that when everyone was going clubbing and everyone was like buying stuff and doing things and I think this is where me and you have such a close connection and why we're so similar is like we really struggled to find that interesting and I think we've always like kind of struggled to find those types of things interesting. But you in particular, as you've gone through your your 20s and now going into your 30s, you, as a, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but on an observational perspective, you are more than happy to stay in in your pajamas, make a salad, watch a film and go to bed on a Saturday night. And the idea of going to Soho and going clubbing and drinking or getting drunk generally doesn't appeal to you that much am I 
wrong <laughs> in thinking. No, 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 you're totally right. And I also think that stems from, I knew that I had cancer, as I said, from the moment I felt this lump. And I had, I had a slow growing cancer. So they think that it was growing in me for the best part of two years. Wow. And when you've experienced something like that, where you just feel off, I now won't go against what my body's telling me. Okay, it's psychosynthesis. It's my gut. It's my gut instinct. It's my intuition. It's my solar plexus. If something is not off and I don't want to do something, I'm not going to put my body at risk or in a predicament that could potentially make me feel uncomfortable and could potentially put my health at risk in the long term. Um and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I also think it comes back to I'm more than happy to spend time doing the slightly more mundane things because I have such a huge appreciation for them. Because, as I've said, I've, 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 mm. I've faced my mortality and, and that's what kind of gets me through those more darker, more difficult times and definitely did get me through those times. Spending time one-on-one with friends, with family, laying low um and i'm really I, I get so much pleasure from that yeah I, I get so much pleasure from going for a coffee with someone and sitting outside and just like chatting and, and like having an early night like i can't tell you how much pleasure i get from that i get so much pleasure from the day from being a day person yeah. or like a morning person yes that's such a good way of looking at it that's yeah. really interesting um but it's just interesting because I, I kind of feel like I have a reason why I do it. But I guess your reasons are much deeper and, and probably more significant. Uh, and there's there's definitely something in that. But I just thought I'd ask you. And then and just to follow on from that, then, how has that impacted, if at all, your friendships? Like, do you feel like you're missing out when everyone is doing like big get togethers or girls nights out in town, like on the lash? Like, do, do you do you go to those things? Like, do you feel like you've missed out? Yeah, I mean, I go to them and I definitely haven't missed out. I think I, I think things have leveled out as we've got older. Um, I think mm. as I experienced such trauma from such an early age, I was automatically different. Um, my mindset was different. Um, at a very early age, I realised that, you know, I can't control death, but I can control my personal actions. So I'm in control. And most teenagers just aren't thinking like that because they're, because they're not wired to, because that isn't their ecosystem, that isn't the way in which they're operating. Um, I think as we get older, um, and we're by no means old, but I do think as we are getting older, mentalities and outlooks are starting to level off. Um, so I don't think I've missed out. I think I've just had a very different perspective and experience which, you know, in my line of work mm. is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, diversity of thought is always a good thing. And, and again, really interesting perspective on that. So to, to sum all of all of that up, how, how do you generally look after your mental health? I think, I think spirituality um, has a part to play. Um, as I said, my kind of psyche and my outlook is to look at things quite positively. I practice psychosynthesis, so I try and look at everything with a lens of learning and with a lens of self-development. Um, my friends, as you've already said, going for a coffee um, and, and, and exercise. Um, 
and therapy. You know, I'm not afraid to admit that I, as I said, I've been in therapy for most of my life, in and out. I'm in therapy at the moment. I'm working with a psychosynthesis therapist. Um, because it's important. I am officially, this is the first time I've said it, but I'm officially three weeks into therapy. I've had three sessions for the first time in my life. It took me 30 years to get there, but 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 I got there in the end. And like even already, just by like talking about stuff for three hours and someone giving you a different perspective on things or asking you some probing questions, it really does shift your mindset. And I can see why people get so invested in it and and how important it is and i think i mean i i don't know what number episode this will be but certainly previous episodes everyone everyone that's come on this podcast has been in therapy and it's amazing and i just want anyone who's listening to know just how common it is like it's and and how much it can really really help your mental health but also what i don't think is spoken enough about therapy is how painful it is I mean, I am literally dreading my therapy session this week. All I want to do is cancel it. Um, and it takes willpower to stay in therapy because it's hard and it's painful and it's slow and you feel like you're moving backwards and you've got to open up all those old wounds that you didn't address and you didn't talk about for years because it was so painful then. Like, it's even more painful now. Mm. But it's so important to stick with it and I really do believe you know and there are different modalities of of, of therapy and and psychotherapy um but using using your therapist or using your time in therapy to reflect and to learn um is kind of a key concept that I practice within psychosynthesis and I think if you can encourage people to look at everything and every experience as a life lesson it can really aid the process but it's hard beautifully said beautifully said listen one of the things as you know that I ask everyone to do is write a letter to their younger self and you of all people will have a very interesting one given just how traumatic your childhood was so I don't know what you're gonna say I don't know if you've done it or not either um I kind of hope you have um but (laughs) when you're ready i would love to hear either some advice to your younger self or indeed your your very own letter yeah so i gave this a little bit of thought um and it's short and sweet but i'll read to you what i wrote um which is that you will fall but every time you gather your pieces together and rise again you'll learn that you are always going to be okay you can fall down but you'll catch yourself too i love that i love that it was short i love i love that how poetic it was but you you've you you're someone who has spent so much time reflecting on the past that you've probably done this exercise in many different ways previously and i think there's so much resilience and tenacity in in what you just said and you are the absolute product of of someone who who has come over such extraordinary circumstances and you should be really proud of who you are and everything you've achieved and you know i talk about personal branding a lot and you are someone who is a, a go-getter, a, a high flyer, competitive with yourself and others. You're just always striving for more and personal growth is so, so important to you. And um, yeah, you should be really, really proud. Thanks. Stand into silence. Listen, 
I will see you soon. Um, we will go for a coffee, our favourite things, our, our little pleasures in life. Um, and I hope um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too difficult. Uh, thank you so much once again for joining me. And yeah, like I say, I will see you soon. Thank you. Thanks once again for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Please don't forget to follow or subscribe from wherever you're listening from to be notified of future episode releases. And until next time, take care and I'll see you soon.